It's like, there's four open ones. What's your problems? Are you afraid of me? Or are you afraid I'm going to spit or something? I'm kidding. It's just, it's just kind of weird. Those ones never fill up. Uh, hey, good to see you. How many of you want your hour back? Yeah? I went to bed last night at midnight thinking it was 11. It was, it was not 11. And I woke up, I thought, ah, oh, usually I wake up pretty early, and I woke up earlier, it felt like. It was awful. But anyways, I don't like this chime change. That's just a segue. Here it is. Good to see you all. Uh, do me a favor. Wave to someone next to you. We need to do some talking. Feel free to say hello. Hi, how are you? We can talk to each other. It's okay. We can wave. Uh, Shar, that camera right behind you is on if you want to stand up and say hello. There it is, everyone, there's Shar. Anyone else want to get in on that? No? Okay. We could turn them all on and everyone else could do it. Do it never mind. Okay. Uh, hey, good to see you. Uh, there's some things that I wanted to talk about, about the Bible today. We're, we are still continuing in Exodus, and this is to help me get through the morning because we lost that hour. Uh, but uh, Exodus, we're in Exodus tonight. Today we're going to be in, well, the schedule has us in Exodus 20. But in order to, exodus, to, in order to understand Exodus 20, you have to go to 19 because 19 becomes before 20, right? And it's just a little context of what's happening. But before we get there, in the Bible, there are specific points that seem to repeat themselves, which is fascinating, right? Because it's 36 different authors, depending on who you think wrote Hebrews, 36 different authors over 1,500 years, uh, and, and they, it's 66 books, Yet all of them form together this one cohesive message, and that's amazing in and of itself. The other thing that's awesome is they all seem to have the same pivotal points. And chances are none of the authors really read the other author's stuff because they were either dead when the other author began or this wasn't in circulation. And so as you're reading through the Bible, uh, there's these this times where specific events tend to happen where God and his relationship with humans tend to shift. And these always seem to happen on mountains. I don't know why, that's just what happens. So as you flip through your scriptures, you come to Genesis 6. We're not going to spend a lot of time there. In Genesis 6, you have the story of Noah and the ark. In Genesis 8, the ark comes to rest. In Genesis 9, you see that the ark came to rest on a mountain. Mount Ararat, it's in modern-day Turkey. Here is the first time on a mountain, God is speaking to a man named, what's the name of the dude with the ark? Noah. Yes, points for you. God speaks to Noah. And as he's speaking to Noah, he gives him a sign. It's called the Noahic Covenant. Clever name, Noah, Noahic Covenant. And so God establishes a new way of relating to humans on top of this mountain, okay? He says this in Genesis 9, 11, I establish my covenant with you. Never again will all of life be destroyed by waters of a flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. And all of us went, phew, that's a good sign, right? And then there was a rainbow and the sign of the covenant, covenants have signs. The sign of the covenant as a reminder of the covenant that was made was a rainbow saying that God is no longer going to act in that way. So the relationship between God and humans had shifted. 
The next mountain you see, so if you keep flipping to your right, it comes on Genesis 22. It's Mount Moriah. I mean, you know this story. Abraham has a son named Isaac. It's the son of the promise. Abraham's, God's covenant with Abraham was, I'm going to make you, Abraham, and all of your children, I'm going to make you a great nation. So Abraham has Isaac. And then in Genesis uh, 21, 22, God calls Abraham and says, I want you to go to the top of Mount Moriah and do a sacrifice. I want you to sacrifice Isaac. And it is this somewhat disturbing story for a while because it's the story of Abraham taking his son to sacrifice him. But on top of the mountain, God provides another way. God establishes or reestablishes his covenant with Abraham and then says this, uh, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and you've not withheld your only son, I will bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. Uh, for those of us who haven't seen the sky at night in a long time because of the clouds, there are stars up there. It is fascinating. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies. And through your offspring, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And so God is reestablishing his covenant with Abraham and Isaac. And there's another thing going on here in the backdrop of history. Human sacrifice was a thing. And so God is saying not only is he going to reestablish a new covenant with Abraham, but the whole idea of how you please God changes on top of a mountain named Moriah. In every instance where we see a mountain and where God is there, it demonstrates that God is doing something for us. God is doing something. Our relationship changes. God leads in the scriptures from mountaintops to mountaintops. And every time there is a shift in the relationship. So the book of Exodus starts in this way. They forgot who, who Joseph was. The Abraham comes in. Or no, I'm sorry, Moses comes in. Moses says, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, no. And then there's all the plagues. And then finally, Pharaoh says, yes, take off. And they leave and they go to the Red Sea. And Pharaoh decides he's going to change his mind. And Pharaoh's chasing them. And then the Red Sea splits. And then the people cross over on dry land with the water on every side. And then the Pharaoh's army tries to chase them and the water collapses on them. And then the people of Israel are walking in the desert. But they're not aimlessly walking in the desert. They're going somewhere. And as you look and see, as you follow them along, they're heading towards another mountain. This mountain is probably, in Scripture to this point, the most formative mountain that they'll ever be. This mountain is Mount Sinai. And in Exodus 19, it's one of the most pivotal passages in Scripture. That's why you can't skip 19 to get to 20. You have to go through 19 in order to see why this mountain means so much to the, Israel, to the people of Israel. But not just to them. This mountain means so much to the entire overarching arc of the, this narrative in the Bible and also to you and I. Because at Sinai, something shifts, something happens that hasn't happened since the Garden of Eden. At Sinai is the first time since then that God speaks to a group of people all at once. Now, there have been times that God spoke to Abraham, he spoke to Noah, he spoke to various individuals from here, from in the past through Genesis. 
But here in Exodus 19, God decides he's going to speak to the entire nation of Israel all at once. This is huge. Some have said that this is the only time in the only faith tradition where the deity of a religion is talking to a group of its people all at one time at once. It's never happened. So when you see Exodus 19, God begins to speak. This is monumental. And so we have to pause and say, okay, what is going on in this story? What is happening? Now, this section of scripture is also where we get these uh, Ten Commandments. We know them, right? Thou shalt not, you will not, thou shalt, you will, all of those fun rules. In Hebrew, they're known as the Ten Words, not Ten Commands. Now, we look at them as commands because we think this is do's and don'ts, but that's not what's happening here. There's a bigger picture going on than just rules. Yes, these are guidelines. Yes, they do establish a way of living. Yes, they are still applicable to us today. But this is not this picture of an angry God giving us a rule book on what we have to do in order to gain his approval. And, and then it's not this excuse for God to, to have if we mess up and do something that we shall not do. It's not an excuse for him to start smiting people. Many people are familiar with the Ten Commandments, but we're familiar with them in this way, a fire-breathing God, but seen through the lens of Exodus 19, Exodus 20 now has a different kind of meaning. Instead, these words come as a way for you and I, and most importantly, for the way of, for these people of Israel to respond to what God has already done. They're not trying to get God's approval. They have it. They're, they're responding to what God has done. So in order to see this, we need to look at this a little different. And when we do, we see that we come to a place of relationship with God. But more specifically, we come to a place in our relationship where we are responding to God's pursuit of us. And when we do, I have three R's that we'll, we'll realize today. There's another R. Ready? The first one is we see that God desires a relationship with us. The second one is that God gives us a role. And the third is our lives are response, are a response to what God has done. I've been watching uh, Elmo, and so the letter of the day is R, and so write that down. So if, you have, if you're not there already, Exodus 19, the people come to the foot of the mountain. They set up camp. Moses decides he's going to climb to the top. And if you want to do something fun in your spare time or when you're doing your Bible, read Exodus 19 and 20 and count how many times Moses walked up and down the hill. Uh, he, I counted eight. It might be seven, but I counted eight times up and down to the summit of the mountain, back down to the bottom of the mountain. That dude's legs must have been awesome. But here he is. He goes up. He meets uh, at the top of the mountain with God. And notice the first thing that God says before God speaks directly to the people. God wants to have Moses remind the people of where they've come from. And if you read in Exodus, he says it loud enough to Moses so that the people are hearing it. So he's kind of intentionally making sure that the people are eavesdropping what's happening. So in verse 4 of 19, you yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, how I carried you out on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. In other words, everything that's, that's happening here has happened because of my grace. I brought you out on eagles' wings. How awesome would that be? 
Is it Lord of the Rings or Star Trek that has the flying birds? Lord of the Rings, same thing, right? And so, okay, uh, it's not? Wonderful. But you see, the, imagine that. You're being flown out. You're taken, you're taken care of. You're above any kind of threat. On eagle's wings, God has brought them out with the mighty eagle. You are safe. I have brought you out of Egypt. In other words, you didn't do anything here. It's not that you woke up that one Passover morning and said, I'm going to leave. No, God provided a way. He brought them out. It's a gift. Everything they have right now is a gift. Now let's keep going through this, verse 5. If you obey me fully and follow my co- and can keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possessions. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. Now, this verse is what you call loaded. There's a bunch of fun little nuggets that are going on here. And we'll look at a couple of them this week. And then next week, we'll look at a a few more. Uh, It starts with grace. That's the first thing you need to see. The covenant is God moving first. God moves first. The word that we get for covenant, and you all get to say something in Hebrew today, is the word berit. Go for it. One more time. You can get louder. I've heard you louder. Okay. Okay. Berit, it means this. It's covenant, allegiance, or pledge. Berit is where we get the idea of testament. The Old Testament, the New Testament, this is where that word comes from. Berit it has this uh, concept to cut a deal, a practice of relate, relating to business or legal, and then this, a covenant of marriage. A marriage is a berit. It's a covenant. God is inviting these people that day, the people of Israel, into a marriage. He's saying, we're getting married right here at the foot of Sinai. There's no waiting. We're going for it. Uh, In a way, they're eloping to the desert. So there you go. The divine and the human at this point are coming together in a wedding ceremony. Some have noted here that God is binding himself to the people of Israel in this way. In fact, when you look at the idea of a marriage covenant, especially the the vows in the Hebrew weddings, you see a lot of the same language you find here in Exodus in their weddings. This is a wedding. God is proposing marriage, and it's it's vital that we see this. It's a covenant. You and I are used to this world of contracts. Contracts and covenants are vastly different. When we sign a contract, we are saying, if I do this, I'm going to get this, right? It's a, it's a business deal where you come out on top, right? A contract. Now, the covenants are different. Covenants are better or bigger than contracts. Contracts have loopholes. That's why there's contract lawyers. We can find a way out of this. Covenants don't have loopholes. In the Bible, God doesn't work with covenants. He works or with contracts. He works with covenants. In a covenant, I am not doing something in order to get something in return. In a covenant, I live into something. In other words, I've already been given something. Now I live into it and earn it, so to speak. The only covenant that you and I have left that we can relate to is this covenant in marriage. In a marriage covenant, we don't approach it like a contract and say, okay, 
my contract says if I do X, Y, Z, it'll be nullified. So if I approach marriage as a contract, how close can I get to having an affair before I end the contract? If you approach your marriage like that, we, that's, that's in trouble, right? That doesn't work out too well. Covenant does this. Covenant is different. A covenant says, looks at the relationship and doesn't say, how far can I go before it's broken? A covenant says, what can I do in order to be closer to this person? What can I do to serve this person? How can I grow in love towards them? A covenant asks what you can do. A contract says, what can't I do? You see the difference here? So God says, look, I'm making a covenant with you. And in this covenant, I'm going to give you a purpose and direction for your life. So God says this, this is my covenant. And did you see what it's based in? Look what I've done for you already. I've given you your freedom. I've brought you out of Egypt. You're no longer slaves. I've set you free. And at this mountaintop, God says, I'm going to bring you purpose and a calling. And you and I are going to be in a relationship that does not end. There's no backing out on this one. I want to have a relationship with you, the people of Israel. Now, God desires a relationship. He gets it. He says, this is my covenant. But what's more, he gives them a role. If you look at the end of uh, verse 5 and the start of verse 6, although the earth is mine, everything in the earth is God's, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. He calls them priests. Now, three months ago, what were they? Slaves. Now they're priests. They go from building pyramids and, and, and buildings and making bricks and doing whatever the Egyptians had them do. And now he's saying, you're a priest. And what does a priest do? A priest is a go-between for God and humanity. A priest is a mediator of the divine. A priest shows people what their God is like. So you go from being a slave, and in that society, slaves were nobodies, and now, you, you, three months later, you are a representative of God on high. That's quite a role shift, correct? That's a, that's a big change. When you go to a temple or a shrine, and you see a priest there, what they do, what they say, what rituals they perform, they give you a picture of what their God is like what their God cares about, and who their God cares about. So now God says to the people of Israel, you are going to be my priests. In other words, you, Israel, are going to show the rest of the world, of which I own, what I'm like. Now there are hints of this. If you go back, this is not a new idea. If you go back into the beginning part of Exodus, uh, in, in chapter 7, uh, Moses goes before Pharaoh and, the, and he commands him to let the people go. And the text reads that Moses, or that God says to Moses, look, you're going to look like a god in, Moses, in Pharaoh's eyes. Not like you look like a god, like the rock or something like that. But the, they're going to see you, Moses, and think of me. You are going to be... Now, it's not saying that Moses is going to become a god. It's not saying that we become like gods. It says that you're going to be a picture of God to Pharaoh, and he's going to think 
about me. He, you're going to give him an idea of what I look like. God, in this sense, is looking for a flesh and blood representation of what he's like. He's looking for skin and bones so that Pharaoh knows that this God means business. That this isn't just some idea that he's used to. This is how God is dealing and acting with the world. But more than just priests, God is asking them as priests, the other role that they see is that they become a holy nation. If a priest is a representative of God, the holy nation is one that's set apart, completely different from every other nation. Of all the nations in the world, Israel, you're different. I pick you, and I'm going to make you holy. And the idea of holy is that it's set apart. It's different from the other ones. Things are different in this nation as it is in this nation. We kind of see that things are different here as uh, different from other countries. But God says, I'm going to make you priests. You're going to represent me, and you will be different. And the only nation they knew about that they're different from was Egypt. So God is saying, look, you are going to be for me the anti-Egypt. Things that you do are going to be different from what Egypt did. You're going to treat people differently. You're going to worship differently. You're not going to have thousands of gods. You're going to have one. And we'll get to that in a minute. Up until now, God has been on his own. Now he has a people. And then Moses comes down from the mountain. And then... If you have your Bibles, go to Exodus 20. There's a relationship. There's a role. You have been brought out. I have started my relationship with you, Israel. You are a priest. You are set apart. You are doing things differently than any other nation, any other person. You are different. You are my representative. When people see you, they think of me. Exodus 20, verse 1. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God. Who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. And here's where the big shift happens. Who spoke these words? God. Who did he speak them to? If you go counting the up and downs, Moses is standing with the people of Israel. He speaks them to the entire nation of Israel. And the author makes a point of this. It, we're going to do a little Hebrew here. Uh, John, put that up. The first one, it goes like this. The order says, spake God these words saying. Okay? The word spake God these words spake. There it is. That's the veer. The next one, God, Elohim. These words is devar. So devir, devar. Same spelling, different emphasis. These words saying. God spoke these words. God said. So the author saying, God saying this to us. It's a nerdy grammar thing, but it points out that God is making this covenant on his own to all of these people. God is speaking to his people here. And it's special note who God, who is doing the talking. Spake God these words saying. The first thing that he tells them after this is, look what we have gone through together. Look at this. Their relationship is rooted in the deliverance. God said this, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of slavery. Look at what I've done. Look backwards, so to speak. Turn around, look at the trail where you've come from. I brought you here. You're here because of me. Their relationship is rooted in a deliverance from slavery. 
This isn't an abstract God that floats on uh, above the earth, not really caring what you and I go through. No, this is a God who's down in the nitty gritty with us. He's operating on the people's behalf. The Lord brought you out. And with that statement hanging in the air, God then begins the Ten Commandments or the Ten Words. They're rooted in a relationship. With these, God is doing the long process of saying, people of Israel, I'm going to teach you a new way on how to be human and how to live in community. And so the first three commands are how they relate to God and how they're going to be separate from other nations. The first one, you shall have no other gods before me. Essentially, God's saying your your allegiance is to me based on my love, my might, my faithfulness, the promises that I've made. It's not payback for everything I've done to you. What God is saying here is, look, I've proven myself worthy of your devotion. I've proven myself to you. I'm better than all the other gods around. And I've shown you this. So here's the deal. I've done my part of the covenant. I will continue to do my part of the covenant. The first part for you is no other gods before me. I have your heart. No idols. The second part of this, you shall make for you shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven or on earth beneath the, or in the waters below. The second commandment builds on the first. Don't make an image. In ancient Near East, people uh, conceptualized many different gods using images. They made statues and carvings and idols as physical representations of the divine being in in order, and they believed that those statues controlled them or the things around them. The statue carving uh, gives shape and size to the divine, so it was them saying, this is what God looks like, and now I'm going to worship this. An idol helped people understand who their God and what their God was like. If that's what an idol does, God says, we don't need those. In order for people to understand what I'm like and what I care about, what does he have? You. You are a representation of what God is like and what God cares about. That's why he has priests. Priests show the world what God is like through their lives. And because of this, you don't need images of wood You don't need images of stone because God has people. In this sense, those are obsolete. You are going to show the world, Israel, what I'm like. I have my representation, and it's you. No other idols before me. You will worship me alone. Why? Because you're priests. You're my priests. A priest doesn't worship multiple gods. I own you. I, you are mine in a good way. He owns you. You're not going to worship other gods. The third command, you will not misuse the name of the Lord your God. For the Lord your God will not hold anyone guiltless to those who misuse their name. Now, I grew up in a time where uh, this meant that we shouldn't cuss. Okay? This is how it was always taught to me. That if I said, oh my, fill in the blank, or other curse words that have the name of Jesus or God attached, that is taking the name of of the Lord in vain. Which, 
I would agree, those aren't ways to show respect and honor to Christ and to God. Good. However, I don't think that it's saying that if you use the phrase, oh my, or, or whatever, that automatically you have sinned the abominable sin. I think what's going on here is a little bit deeper. God has given them a role, right? He's saying when people see you and the way you treat others with the way that you live your life, they're going to think of me. You're not going to worship anyone else but me, so I'm the only one that's going to be influencing you. Now, if you take my name in vain, if I misuse God's name, what I'm doing there is as a priest, I'm saying that God agrees with this. Now, if God does not agree with this, and I say that he does... I've misused God's name. Make sense? So if I say God condones murder, he doesn't, but let's just, just go with me, okay? God condones murder. I have misused God's name. I have given his approval to something of which he does not approve. Understand? So he's saying, be careful how you live your life, Israel. Don't go around saying that I approve of things that you know I do not approve of. God doesn't approve of murder. Don't go around saying, God doesn't approve of this. Don't go around saying, I do. Be careful. Don't misuse the name of God. Now, the idea of misuse is also translated to the word carry. So essentially what God is saying is, you're going to carry my name around with you wherever you go. And when you, what you accept and what you condone as God's priests will be a picture of what God accepts and what God condones. Do you see the weight of this? I do. What you say God is for is God for that. What, how you live your life is God honored in this. What you accept to misuse God's name is to agree with something that God doesn't agree with. And I'll give you a hint. There are things of which God does not agree with. When I say God's okay with abortion, that's misusing God's name. You understand this? There are plenty of other things that God does not agree with. And to misuse his name is to tie his approval to some pretty Act clear actions in scripture where they say God does not agree with this. Are we following? Okay. There is God's approval. When we tie God's approval to things that God doesn't agree with, we have then misused God's name. All of this is based in the idea that God has a relationship with you and he wants you to carry his name into the world so that the world will see through your life what he is like. This is the powerful moment of Sinai and it's what sets them apart on the mountaintop. After you've seen what God has done for you, after you realize that he desires a relationship with you, after that he has bound himself to you with an eternal covenant, he's given you a role, he's given you a calling, he's given you a purpose, a reason to get up in the morning. You used to be slaves, and now you're free. And now you're a picture of the almighty God of the universe. You've gone from no purpose, and now you can't find purpose. 
a bigger one. This is the journey to Sinai. God established a covenant with them. And now here's their response. Worship me alone. No cheating on me in this covenant. God rescued them. Their response is this. Don't settle for cheap imitations of God. God carried them on eagles' wings. Their role? Carry God's name well. Live into your calling. All of this to say that the proper response of Exodus 19 finds itself in the ten words of Exodus 20. The events of Mount Sinai kicked off what is known as the Torah, the law section of the scripture. Sinai is one mountaintop that points to another mountaintop that comes later in scripture. Where God's relationship with humans takes on its final shape. There are other mountains between Sinai and then Calvary is the big one that comes next. And on Calvary, Jesus ascended this mountain all by himself. He ascended the mountain and he died on our behalf so that we can have a what with God? A relationship with God. Sinai points to Calvary. Through Christ, God displays just how far he will go to have a relationship with us. And on the cross, Jesus made a new covenant. And he talks about it the night before, the day before he's crucified. A new covenant with his blood. He binds us with him, with his blood, and he seals it with the resurrection so that we can have a relationship with him. This is the good news. Sinai points to Jesus. Paul talks about this in the letter of Romans. It's a complex letter. It's a beautiful letter. But for the first 11 chapters of Romans, Paul is talking about our need for Jesus. That we need a mediator. That we need someone to go between to reconcile us. You go back even more. That you and I are unable to do that for ourselves because we're all sinners. Every single one of us. And in order for us to have a relationship with God, we need Jesus. Abraham pointed to the f- in faith that there's going to a need for Jesus. And he was, he was uh, declared righteous because of this. Moses, the same way. They all had faith that something's coming. So for the first 11 chapters of Romans, he builds on this idea that we need a Savior. And in, verse, in chapter 10, he goes, the Savior is Christ. And you need to have faith in him. If you confess him, Savior, you will be saved. Chapter 12 starts with this wonderful word of therefore, okay? So you've come to the peak, and now everything's downhill. It comes to the therefore. So basically, because of everything that I've said in the huge document behind me, everything that God has done, therefore, here's your response. I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's, what? Mercy. Offer your body as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Does this idea sound familiar? God sitting at Sinai, hey, look behind you. In view of everything that I've done for you, in view of all the stuff that I did, what's your response? Worship. Offer your bodies to me as worship. Paul, in view of everything that we just talked about, 11 chapters worth, Look at everything in view of what God has done for you. What do you do? 
offer your bodies as worship. An offering is the what we do in response to what God has done for you and I. We don't do this in order to get God's approval. Why? Just like Israel. We already have that. You can't work for something you already own. You do this in response because you already have it. Through Christ, you have God's approval. Now your life is different. Respond accordingly. Verse 2, chapter 12. Do not conform to the patterns of this world. In other words, all the other nations around you are worshiping other gods. Don't do it. All the other nations around you have idols. Don't do it. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you are able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Now, who has a good idea of what God's will might be? Priests. Right? Paul is saying the same thing Exodus has been saying centuries before. Don't go along with what everything that everybody else is doing. Why? You're different. You're a priest. You carry God's name a lot different than somebody else. You are a representation of God. Peter says it this way in 1 Peter. But you, talking to us, the church, are a chosen people. A royal what? Priesthood. A holy nation. God's special possession. This sounds a lot like Exodus language, right? That you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into this wonderful light. Declare the praises sound like a response. Your life and my life and the way we live, every aspect of our lives comes as a response to what God has already done. You don't have to go around earning something that you already have. We look for a calling We look for a purpose. You already have that too. Because of what Jesus did on the cross. You have a purpose. Peter says, you, just like the people of Israel, are a priest. We respond with the way we live our lives. This gift of grace, this gift of mercy is available to you. If you've never taken a hold of it, it's yours. You don't have to earn it. Paul goes at that detail in in Romans. We can't. There's nothing you can do to earn this. It's a covenant. It's God saying, you can't earn this on your own. It's everything I'm doing on your behalf so that all you have to do is say, I'm in. And then you're in. It's that simple. If you've said yes to this, awesome. Here's the challenge to you. Every day you wake up is a day which you get to carry the name of God with you. My dad used to do this thing. We, we all played sports, and, my, and we had the, the, jerseys, the names on the jerseys back in the day. I don't know if they do that yet still, but we had a name on a jersey. When one of us would do a bad thing on the field, dad would remind us, what name's on your jersey? And it's like, oh, I remember one time I... I was playing football and I got clipped and I slid with my face mask in the dirt and I let out a couple words that were probably not appropriate for family time and uh, I looked up and saw my dad great what name was on my jersey was I carrying the name well 
you wake up in the morning. You are a priest of the Most High. You are a representation of what God is. You are made in the image of God. You have said yes to Jesus. You have entered into his covenant. You have a role. What's the role? Carry the name well. Yes, there is grace when we screw up. Don't worry about it. You're not going to get smitten. There's grace for when we screw up. But the challenge is this. See what God's done for you. And when you see what God has done for you, it'll change what you do during your day. When you see the immense sacrifice that Christ made on your behalf, it should challenge you to say, I want to get to know this Jesus. When you see what God has done for you and the grace that he's given to you, I want to get to know this God. Why? So that you may represent him better. And when you represent him better, this is worship. It's more than just singing songs with Dylan and Dan and Allie, no matter how talented they are. Your life and how you live before you come in these doors and as you go out, declare the name of God well. Who are you allegiant to? Who are you tied to? Where are your other idols? And who do you carry? Exodus 19 and 20 are phenomenal books because they give us a picture of what God has done for us and they give us our response to worship. Now today, after service, we're having a baptism. Shar's getting baptized. We're just going to say the name. Shar, right there. She's getting baptized. <laughs> Woo! Baptism is a response to what Jesus has done in Shar's life. By being baptized, she's saying, I'm in. It's the sign of Jesus descended and risen again to new life. Baptism is a response to worship. How you live with your money is a response in worship. How you sing these songs, we're allowed to sing by the way, how you sing these songs in church is a response in worship. And it's all in view of what God has done for you and I. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for all that you have done. You have called each and every single one of us out of slavery, just like the people of Egypt out of slavery to sin and into new life found in you. You have given us a relationship with you. You have given us a, a responsibility to you. And you've given us a role to live in. And so God, right now, I, I ask that your, your spirit would, would begin to work in our midst, whether in this room or at home or wherever people are watching online. And you would stir a response. Perhaps there's somebody today that has never said yes to you for the first time. God, may you give them courage to say yes so that they can respond to your grace. And if that's you today, I sure want to talk to you. I would love to hear more about your story. I would love to point you in a way and guide you in a way where you can live in fully to the way God has gifted you. God, there might be others that are looking at this going, wow, I really have assigned God's name to some things that God shouldn't be associated with. Whether it's publicly or in private, 
there's some things going on that you don't belong to and that you do not approve of. And so even in that, God, may we see and find your grace because we're all guilty of that. And may we repent, may we return and reclaim the role that you have given us. Jesus, we thank you for what you did on your mountain that you went up in order to get us. That your sacrifice and your death and your resurrection bring us new life. We thank you for these mountains. May today be a mountain for one of us today where we can look back and go, things changed on March 14th for me and God. In Jesus' name we pray.